when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. It's now widely accepted that the UK could have handled coronavirus better. On June the 30th, Boris Johnson finally admitted that not everything had gone to plan. And I know that there are plenty of things that people will say, uh, and we got wrong. And of course, there must be time to learn the lessons, and we will. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. In this episode, our first in-depth interview special, I'll be speaking with Jeremy Hunt, former health secretary from 2012 to 2018, about why the UK was not better prepared for a pandemic like COVID-19 and what lessons need to be learned from the government's response so far. I was one of the people who was calling for us to go into lockdown earlier than we did. And, you know, at the time we were being told that the infection rate was doubling every five to six days. It now looks like it was actually doubling faster than that every three to four days. But even... Last year, Mr Hunt unsuccessfully challenged Mr Johnson for the Tory party leadership. He's currently chair of the House of Commons Health Select Committee and is one of the most influential voices in the debate around coronavirus. Like many MPs, he has had to adapt from conducting parliamentary business from home, although when he spoke to us, he managed to make it into his House of Commons office. Jeremy, thank you very much for joining us on Payne's Politics. It's a pleasure, sir. Jeremy Hunt, two years ago, you were sitting in the position where Matt Hancock is today, at the top of the Department for Health as the minister in charge of the NHS. Now, in a way, as head of the select committee, you're the poacher turned gamekeeper. You've gone from the man running the health service to the man criticising it. Have you found that an awkward position? Because in some ways, you need to criticise things you did yourself. Well, I've always thought that one of the problems we have in medicine is that we aren't self-critical enough. And the reason for that is because when things go wrong in healthcare or medicine, sadly, people often die. And then it becomes much harder for anyone to admit mistakes. And when I was health secretary, I spent a lot of time campaigning on patient safety and for a more open culture where we didn't have a blame culture and we allow people to admit things that might have gone wrong so we can learn from them. And I think... uh, you know, the same thing has happened here. So I've been very open about things that we may not have got right when I was health secretary in terms of pandemic preparedness. And I feel very much for Matt Hancock. I think it is one of the most difficult jobs in Britain today to be health secretary, but to be health secretary in a pandemic, you know, you cannot underestimate the pressure he's under. And I have to say, I think he's been incredibly resilient. Well, back at the beginning of this pandemic, I think at the 1st of March, you wrote an op-ed when you said, having done many dry runs and tabletop exercises for this kind of situation when I was health secretary, I can say hand on heart that if I was going to be in a country which had a pandemic, I would choose the UK. Given everything we've seen over the past 16 weeks since lockdown began, is that still the case? Well, I'd probably revise that, actually, because 
It is true that the UK did more pandemic preparations more thoroughly than nearly any other country in the world. And we were actually ranked in the Global Health Security Index by Johns Hopkins University as the second best prepared country in the world. But what's become clear since I made that statement is that we were very prepared for pandemic flu, but we hadn't done enough preparations for pandemic SARS-like viruses, which is what coronavirus is. And I think that is a failing that we had in common with the United States, with nearly every country in Europe, because we were all countries that had suffered pandemic flu in the past, but not suffered from pandemic SARS or MERS. And I think that is the big fault line. The countries that had the best responses uh, were overwhelmingly countries that had direct experience of SARS. Now, why wasn't the UK better prepared for that? Because we all remember the SARS outbreak. Was it judged in the Department for Health that it was unlikely anything like that would happen here? We did absolutely know about MERS and SARS. We did huge tabletop and practical exercises. Operation Cygnus, which I was responsible for in 2016, took over three days. It was completely out of the headlines. Um, None of you guys were interested in reporting it at all. And we were just testing our system for pandemic flu. But if you look at the results of that exercise, what is fascinating is there wasn't a single recommendation on testing and not a single recommendation to expand the PPE stockpile. So you can see the focus is on how you would deal with flu. And my sort of preliminary conclusion on this is you can't predict what type of virus is going to attack you. So you have to have flexibility in your response and be willing to change things very quickly. And what is clear to me now is that uh, the wrong scientific advice was given to ministers uh, by SAGE in the early part of the pandemic. They modelled herd immunity strategy. They modelled full lockdown. They did not model uh, Korean-style test and trace, which turned out to be the best way of tackling coronavirus. And that wasn't given to ministers as an option. And I think the only way that you can avoid those problems in the future is much more transparency about the scientific advice given to ministers so that other scientists not on SAGE uh, in our great universities can all peer review the advice that SAGE is giving to ministers and challenge it. And that way we can make sure it really is as good as it can be. We'll definitely come back to SAGE and its role in this in a moment, but just to focus on on the Cygnus exercise you mentioned. This was carried out in October 2016 when you were health secretary, and it was very much how the UK could cope with a flu pandemic. But you said that it didn't look at areas like testing and tracing, which became vital in the coronavirus fight. But one thing it did identify, for example, was ventilator capacity, which is something that was a problem at the beginning of this outbreak. You know, why wasn't that acted on when you were at the Department for Health? Well, I think it identified, this was modelling sort of four, five hundred thousand deaths. And it identified in that situation, you would have a shortage of ventilators, you'd have pressures in the social care system. And I had already concluded at that time that we needed to increase capacity in the NHS, which is why I argued successfully for one of the biggest funding increases, in fact, the biggest funding increase in the NHS's history, which I secured exactly two years ago in uh, the summer of 2018. 
So I think we were all aware of the need to increase the capacity of the health and social care system. But I would disagree that that was the fundamental issue in terms of our pandemic response. I think actually the NHS response has been spectacularly successful. Um, Not a single patient was denied a ventilator. Not a single patient was denied an intensive care bed. Uh, We built the Nightingale Hospital in the Excel Centre in 10 days flat. We showed that we could actually expand the NHS's capacity very quickly. I think the problem was much more that there was a kind of groupthink in terms of our approach to pandemics that very much had conditioned us all to think the way to respond is the way you respond to a flu. And uh, I think that was where the problem arose. And why were the findings from that exercise signals never published? Some have been leaked into the public domain now, but you're talking about transparency in a learning exercise. Wouldn't Do you think it should be a good thing to get those out there to see what was recommended back in 2016 and if any of it is still relevant? Well, I think it's all been leaked, actually. And um, it's very clear if you look at that, that all the recommendations made to ministers were implemented and that was actually confirmed by the Permanent Secretary of the Department of Health at a, an appearance before the Public Accounts Committee. So the recommendations made were implemented. That wasn't the issue. The issue is why we were preparing for flu and didn't think to prepare for other different types of viruses. Now, if you compare that to South Korea, what's fascinating is that after the, the MERS pandemic in 2014-15, the South Korean government was heavily criticised domestically for the slow ramp-up of testing. And they learnt lessons from that, which turned out to be invaluable when it came to coronavirus and, and probably meant they had the best response to coronavirus of anywhere in the world. So I think that is what we need to think about. We need to make sure that, firstly, within our system, we prepare for a broader range of pandemics And secondly, that there is an openness there that can challenge preconceptions and and groupthink um, so that we are better at learning from best practice from all over the world. Because South Korea was doing what it was doing in in January or February, but it wasn't until April that SAGE started to model the approach that had been taken in, in South Korea. And those two critical months could have made an enormous difference. Well, you've mentioned SAGE a couple of times and its role in all this. Let's look at that. So this is the government's scientific advisory group made up of the most eminent professors and scientists across the country. And they advise the government and the prime minister and the health secretary on what course of action that should be taken there. Um, I think you told Parliament on May the 11th that the group is too much focused on this dichotomy between total lockdown or herd immunity, and there was no middle way there. And you've mentioned there was maybe a bit too much groupthink. Why is that? Why do we have that sort of consensus there that maybe wasn't challenged enough? Well, we have extraordinary scientific brains on SAGE. And I think uh, Chris Whitty and Patrick Valance are outstanding, both in terms of their abilities and their integrity. But academics are consensual by nature. And so I think there is always a risk of a lack of challenge. And I think that if we had known the advice that was being given to ministers in January, then that advice would have been peer-reviewed by scientists up and down the country people would have challenged it. And then the next time Sage gave advice, it would have improved. And I think the model for that 
is the advice that economists give to the government on the Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee, where we we publish uh, not just the advice that's been given, but we publish which economists have voted in favour of an interest rate rise and which economists have voted against that. And, you know, since that reform was introduced actually by Gordon Brown when he made the Bank of England independent, we have not had a problem with inflation in this country. So I think it's proved its mettle. And I think we need to look at that in terms of the scientific advice that's given to ministers. It feels as if transparency has got a little bit better with SAGE, that there are now minutes that are periodically published and people like me can sit and read through them and see, you know, what the broad consensus that came out of them. But in the membership of SAGE, you know, they released, the government released that for the first time during this pandemic, but it's still optional. And there's still some people who sit on that committee who are not publicly known. So do you think minutes should be published much sooner? And should the membership be fully public or should even their meetings be recorded in some way for people to watch? I think the membership should be public. And I think the advice to ministers should be made available publicly quickly. And I think there is an argument in a pandemic that it should be made available almost immediately, because I think there is a premium on acting very rapidly. Well, one mistake that I think was made and has been quite widely reported is the sage advice about going into lockdown, that when you look back at those minutes from early March, there seemed to be quite a lot of dithering there about whether we should go into the lockdown basis. You know, do you think this group think that we talked about um, stopped scientists from going to the obvious conclusion that we needed to go into lockdown. And we know that from, I think, the week of the March the 18th, just before it happened, it was actually Dominic Cummings, the Prime Minister's advisor, who made a big intervention and in saying we need to go into lockdown. Do you think that was actually vital for sort of breaking the scientists there out of a slumber? Well, I think it'd be very unfair to describe them as in any kind of slumber. I think the people on that committee have been working exceptionally hard and they are brilliant people but you know it's absolutely clear and Neil Ferguson has said himself that if we'd gone into lockdown a week earlier we could have halved the death toll. Do you agree with that analysis? Do you think Neil Ferguson was right on that? Well I was one of the people who was calling for us to go into lockdown earlier than we did and um, you know at the time we were being told that the uh, infection rate was doubling every five to six days it now looks like it was actually doubling faster than that every three to four days. But even a doubling rate of five to six days suggests that if you stop it in its tracks a week earlier, fewer than half the people would have got it. I do think we got that wrong. And if you remember at the time, the concern was that if you go into lockdown too early, people will tire of it. And then when the virus hits its peak, people will not comply with lockdown anymore. That was the worry that people on on SAGE had. I think in retrospect, we can see that those behavioural concerns should have been trumped by basic public health concerns. Indeed, and that was Professor Neil Ferguson, who is Imperial College London, known as Professor Lockdown, because he was one of the key voices urging us to get into lockdown sooner. You've talked about this divide between the scientific advice and ministers here. Do you think ministers and politicians should have intervened earlier in SAGE meetings and overruled the scientific advice? I think that's asking a lot of politicians. I mean, you know, we are generalists. We, We are elected and our system depends on the advice of experts. But I wouldn't want to blame the scientists personally either. I think in these fast-changing situations, 
You just need to have mechanisms in place to make sure that advice is continually challenged and um, you create an atmosphere where you're continually able to tack and change your approach as new evidence comes available. I think another area you've been vindicated on in some respect was about testing that I remember the earlier this crisis you were popping up on the news most evenings saying the UK should test, test, test the whole time. Why do you think the government waited so long to do that? Was that capacity or was it maybe a bit of belligerence? I don't think it was either of those, actually. I think it was because the pandemic flu playbook says that you do stop testing after the first stage. As soon as you have community transmission above a certain level, the virus, flu virus spreads so quickly that it's not, not worth testing. And so that's why uh, when we stopped testing, it was presented to us as a very deliberate act of policy. They said on, uh, I think it was March the 13th, that's right. that they had stopped community testing because we had moved from the contained stage of the virus to the delay stage of the virus, and therefore testing was going to be concentrated in healthcare settings. Um, I think, you know, it's certainly true that if we'd had more capacity, they might have carried on testing a bit longer. But the reason that we didn't ramp up that capacity was because we had a flu strategy, which said, you know, there's going to come a point when you, you don't do testing anymore. Had we had a pandemic SARS strategy in place, we would have ramped up that testing capacity much earlier. One of the natural criticisms that is doing the rounds about this, of course, is that the NHS was underfunded and under-resourced. Going back to your time as health secretary, now I know the NHS was ring-fenced during the austerity years, but still had some very tough times and I think didn't really keep up to pace with the demands of it. Do you have any regrets about not fighting for more resources, which would have had a better basic level of testing capacity that could have helped with community testing? Well, I did successfully fight for the biggest funding increase in the NHS's history, £20.5 billion. So I absolutely believe the NHS needed more resources. And in fact, that increase is equivalent to about 1% of GDP. So it's a huge increase. And had I stayed, I would have turned my energy to fighting for an equivalent increase for the social care system, which is unfinished business and and still urgently needs to be done. But um, much as I wanted to increase resourcing and capacity, capacity of the NHS. I don't think that's been the fundamental issue in terms of our pandemic response. Um, You mentioned testing. I mean, we were able to dramatically increase our testing capacity to around 100,000 a day in just four weeks when the health secretary decided that that was a priority. So that's something you can do if you decide you want to do it. And we did eventually decide to do that. But I think everyone would agree, in retrospect, it would have been better to do that much earlier on. And I think another reason why we didn't was because we were looking at what happened in China, where the virus originated, and thinking there may not be much that we can learn from China because it's a totalitarian society that operates on different principles to our society. And so they might be able to do totalitarian things to contain the virus, that we could never contemplate as a free society. And I I understand that mentality, but if we just looked a little bit further afield, we could have looked at some of the Asian democracies that do have the kind of constraints that we have, Taiwan. South Korea is one example often cited. Yeah, 
very robust democracies. Hong Kong and Singapore are more democratic than mainland China, but not uh, quite as robust a democracy as, as those other two Asian countries. And so, you know, they all had to deal with some kinds of democratic constraints, and they all had a different approach, which it's clear we could have learned from. The other related to testing, of course, is personal protective equipment too, where, again, I think when we get to that inevitable public inquiry, which we all assume will happen, that's going to come up as an issue there because the UK did have stockpiles of various PPE equipment, but it was either inadequate or past its sell-by date again. I assume you think that that's now going to have to be part of the NHS's planning to have all that sort of thing ready for another such outbreak. Yes. I mean, we had a pandemic stockpile. I think it's clear now that that was a stockpile that was targeted at a flu pandemic. And so one of the things we need to do is to look at the um, composition of that stockpile, but also, of course, make sure that it's absolutely kept up to date. I think one of the biggest problems we had with PPE was the separation of the health and social care systems. So that when the NHS dramatically increased its demands for PPE, because they're such a hugely powerful player in the marketplace, they made it virtually impossible for a small independently run care home to get its hands on PPE. And so we need to find a way that makes sure that the social care system is also able to access PPE, because otherwise, as we know, care homes can become a breeding ground for infection. Well, it's interesting you mentioned care homes because I think that's, again, an area where the government seems to have very much failed there. That's something that I've written about before, having lost a close family member of mine who very much fitted this pattern we've seen of someone who was taken into hospital, discharged into a care home, not tested, not isolated, was diagnosed with COVID-19 and then died two weeks later as a result of that. And the fact that NHS England, at that crucial period in March, before there was widespread testing, saw 25,000 patients discharged from hospitals into care homes without testing, without proper isolation procedures in place. That's something that really, I think, shames the whole country. Well, I'm very, very sorry to hear that story, Seb. And um, I'm afraid that heartbreak is one that will be shared by very many people. And it's, it's difficult to know what proportion of our care home deaths were caused by people being discharged without being tested. But we also know another issue was people who work in care homes coming into care homes, going out, sometimes working for an agency for multiple care homes, which is another way the virus gets spread around. One of the interesting things we learned as a select committee looking around the world is how other countries have managed to keep their care home infections and deaths much lower than ours. Hong Kong, for example, hasn't had a single death in a care home from COVID and actually not a single infection. Germany has had much lower rates than us, and Germany had a rule that if someone was being discharged from a hospital, they either had to be tested or they had to go into two weeks quarantine in the care home. And if a care home couldn't give that quarantine, then they weren't allowed to accept patients from hospitals. And South Korea had an interesting program because they offered big increases in salaries to care home workers if they were prepared to live on site or in quarantined hotel rooms, so that during the period of the crisis, they weren't going to and from the community to their care home. 
And that was another way that you can isolate care homes in their entirety. So there are definitely going to be a huge number of lessons to be learned when it comes to care homes. Now, if we just cast back to when you were health secretary, again, back then there was a big debate about obesity and lifestyle conditions. Boris Johnson has talked a lot over the past couple of weeks about the need for the whole country to go on a diet because we've seen that, you know, people who are overweight, that's a major factor in worse COVID outcomes. When you look back at your record on preventative health, would you want to have gone and done more, you know, gone earlier on a sugar tax, that sort of thing? Well, I was really proud. I, I made some huge strides forward when it came to public health. For example, introducing plain paper packaging for cigarettes, banning the display of cigarettes at the counters of shops. When it comes to obesity, introducing the sugary drinks tax, or the sugar tax as it's known. And I always pushed hard for every public health measure I could. My experience is that um, all prime ministers arrive in Downing Street rather suspicious of public health measures because they don't like the idea of the nanny state. And then they look at the evidence put in front of them and they realise that it is a fundamental responsibility of any prime minister to make sure the nation remains in good health. And we are one of the most obese nations in Europe. Our children, I think, when I was health secretary, were the second most obese in Europe after Hungary. And no one with good conscience can look at figures like that and say, actually, we're just not going to do anything about it. Well, that nicely takes us on to Public Health England. We talked about SAGE as being one body that needs a bit of reform following this crisis. PHE is something, if you speak to anybody in Downing Street or some Conservative MPs, the expletives about PHE come out of their mouths very quickly. Could you just begin by, for a lot of people, explaining what PHE is and why it came into being and why you think it's getting so much flack from people over its um, performance in this crisis? Well, Public Health England was set up by the 2012 Health and Social Care Act to be responsible for the public health elements of the Department of Health's responsibilities. I think it's had a fairly uncomfortable existence. It's nominally responsible for the laboratory testing programme, which was obviously one of the things that we didn't get right at the start. They're an easy target for that reason. But, you know, I think it's fair to say that Public Health England generally does what the Department of Health asks it to do. Well, bluntly, you've said it had an uncomfortable role in this crisis. Do you think it should be scrapped and replaced with a different kind of body that can maybe be more responsive? Well, as I say, I don't think that they are the main reason why we were slow to ramp up our testing capacity. Um, but, you know, if we are going to do wholesale reforms, then we should have an open mind as to the role of Public Health England. That is the division bell, Seb, calling me to vote, I'm afraid. Right, can I just very quickly wrap up just on this, Jeremy? Last question. One of the people who may also get the blame for this lack of preparedness may be you yourself, because obviously you've got that record, which you're very happy to defend as health secretary there. But generally saying, what sort of responsibility would you take over this? And if there's a public inquiry, would you be happy to go there and speak about it? Absolutely. I think all of us have to accept we have responsibilities. Um, I was the longest serving health secretary for nearly six years, you know, and I look at my record, and I was very proud of our pandemic preparedness, but I can see we were over-focused on pandemic flu and not on pandemic SARS-like virus. Now, why that happened 
is something that's fundamentally important to understand. But, you know, the fact that those preparations were made on my watch is absolutely something I have to take responsibility for. And finally, what is Jeremy Hunt going to do next? Well, Jeremy Hunt is going to carry on being chair of the Health and Social Care Select Committee, which he's thoroughly enjoying. It's a very big privilege. I wasn't expecting to be such a big role when I put my name forward for election to it in January because we didn't know there was a pandemic coming. But, you know, I think uh, what's the phrase I sometimes use? You can leave the NHS, but it never leaves you. And that's why I'm fascinated and privileged to be doing what I'm doing. And could you ever see yourself going back into government, serving under Boris Johnson, if he asked you? Not for many years. I'm, I'm very happy being a, a rather better dad and hopefully rather better husband than I was in my nine years in the Cabinet. And as you can hear from the division bell ringing in the background, Jeremy Hunt has gone off to vote. That's it for this episode of Payne's Politics. Thank you very much again to Jeremy Hunt for joining us. And if you've liked this podcast, we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and your smart speaker to receive episodes as soon as they're released. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Fiona Simon, Liam Nolan, Josh Delamere, and Breen Turner, with research by George Steer. As ever, thanks for listening. 